Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, Summer Spectacular. This is is this the third summer? Third one. Third. So we're we're clipping along through the summer here. It's gonna be half done. Yeah. Well, students are almost coming back. I'm so excited. I miss them. It's not the same. It really isn't. You walk I because I when I walk in to go to work, I walk in and I used to like I would walk through the student center like frequently and like you can go through there and there's always you you can like expect the certain ones to be playing ping pong or sitting on the couches and sitting at these tables and it's just dark. It's empty. It's it disgusting. It really Sometimes is. locked. Yeah. I know. <laughs> that too. That too. Somebody's kids get in there. <laughs> what? Out of control. <laughs> anyway, so we've got some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Who's going first? I'll go first. So again, I'm just, it's busy this summer. And so I'm just putting up books I've read before to recommend to you because I think they're interesting. So this time I want to talk about Tim Challies has a book uh, called The Next Story, Life and Faith After the Digital Explosion. He, he wrote this uh, five or so years ago. Uh, I read it and I enjoyed it a lot. And so I would recommend it to you. It's, um, he's, he's going to talk about what our society's like today. And how we need to adapt because digital communication and social media is so huge. And so he starts the book off with a really interesting uh, comparison. And so I don't think I'm giving anything away, but I'm just going to explain it. Uh, There's a guy named Admiral Lord Nelson who is quoted as saying, Every man is a bachelor once he sails past Gibraltar. So the the rock of (laughs) Gibraltar. Okay. The Rock of Gibraltar is this, you know, it's like you're going past the tip of, I think it's Spain and you're going down the, by Africa. And really during the slave trade era, you didn't, no one was going to know what you're doing for the next four months. And so his point is a lot of like bad stuff goes on because you have no one seeing you. And so Chalice points out that like, there's a lot of, uh, like think about the guy who wrote amazing grace, uh, John Newton, I think he, he lived a horrid life as a slave trader and he could do all kinds of debauched things. And so why was he able to do that? Well, no one's around except for the people in the boat with him. Right. And so he compares that Chalice does to like a traditional small knit, small town community that was really closely knit. It's, it's possible that some people in those small towns, wouldn't ever tra- travel much further than like maybe one or two towns away their whole life. And uh, the, the, the city, the town's really small. You know a lot of people. Whatever you do is sort of known. It's like you're all kind of living in a, in a fishbowl. He said that there's a built-in level of accountability when you have like a fishbowl existence than when you're out off on the seas. And so you can kind of see that where small towns provide that sort of a structure and a community. And so he says this, and I think that his, I'm going to read a quote of him making the point. He says in the many years in many years of thinking and writing about issues related to digital living, I don't know that I found a better illustration than, than this of the challenge we face as we ponder life after the digital explosion today in our digital world, we spend much of our lives beyond Gibraltar, beyond accountability through visibility, able to say and do and look at and enjoy whatever our hearts desire. Yet for all the freedom that it brings us, it can also bring us into captivity. 
And so he's going to go on and talk about every aspect he can think of with the digital explosion. So quick example, he talks about, uh, I think a lot of times you think of digital problems, you think of pornography, but he's actually talking about all kinds of stuff. So here he's just talking about communication. Um, and so he reads, he, he quotes Proverbs ten nineteen: when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And he says, if you think about that in Solomon's day, who's listening to you? Well, it's just other physical people. And so he's like, now you can get on Twitter and you can blast whatever you want everywhere. You can say it on social media or Instagram or whatever. And so he says, we don't need to dip far into the pages of scripture to learn the potential blessings and dangers that we face in this age of pervasive communication. The Bible bursts with exhortations and commands to guide us in the way we use our words. It tells us time and time again that speech is a responsibility. Words can be used to build up or to destroy, to encourage or devastate, to bring joy or to bring pain. And so I really appreciated the book because he thinks about the issue of online existence beyond just sexual lust and temptation. Uh, he talks about it in all the facets because maybe you don't look at porn, but maybe you're a total jerk on social media, or maybe you say things on social media you'd never say to someone's face if you're looking at them in the eye. Well, he brings up a lot of these and I really, I thought it, I thought it was very profitable. It's also an easy read. This is not a hard book. So I give it a four on the Thinkling's goodness scale. And that's a good, I think that's a really good rating. It's a, I appreciate a four. the book. A four. Yeah. I, I think, I thought you'd put it higher, but that's fine. Well, I think it's a good book, and I think you need to read it, and it's probably good to go back to again and again. I was about to say five. Maybe I should say five, because I think that was my my gut reaction was five. So I'll go for five. I'll, I'll redact right. that. I have not read it. So Just to clarify, my amen from earlier is not amening <laughs> the debauchery of bachelors on their way to Africa. <laughs> just to That's good. We I think, appreciate I think that context would assume that, but... <laughs> Just so we're all on the same page. So what was the amen? Just bachelor. Bachelor. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. No. Okay, okay, so my books in business is Preaching Christ from the Old Testament by Sidney Gradanis. I don't know if I said the last name correctly, but whatever. That is what Dr. Dan told me it is, so he Word. cannot be wrong. Nope. Um, so I didn't have very high, I did not have very high expectations for this book and I am not done with it, by the way, I've only made it through like the first hundred pages or so, but uh, so far I've actually been more impressed than I expected. Uh, preaching Christ in the old Testament is a, a common, uh, Christological interpretation. And I see pastors and popular writers, um, uh, twist the old Testament and, uh, um, force a Christological interpretation that's not really there. And uh, Gradanis is actually uh, speaking against that on several occasions. Uh, for example, a uh, well-known preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was okay with Christologizing the Old Testament, and you had to find Jesus there somewhere, and sometimes even just spiritualizing the text and allegorizing it. He, um, he would... Uh, uh, speak against some preachers uh, in his lectures to my students. He has this whole section on it. It was I was really surprised. But sometimes he's like, "Well, it's not in the text. You're forcing interpretation there." But then at other times he's like, "Oh, you know, if you can't find Jesus there, then it's okay to, you know, spiritualize it and get him in there somewhere." You know. But he he's like my typical Christological preacher. But uh, Gradanus is not about that. Um, he spoke against Spurgeon and Spurgeon's method uh, specifically. So I'm kind of excited to see uh, where he goes with this. I was talking to Carter off air and he uh, doesn't like this book. 
<laughs> and so I'm wondering if he's going to get... Caveat. <laughs> he's going to make caveats. <laughs> you just... You, just lean you up said to the you didn't like it. And you yelled caveat. <laughs> okay. I've, it's not fair to just say I didn't like it. There are portions that I do like that I've already talked about on the podcast. So yeah, you can go back and listen to that. Books and business like four episodes ago. Mm-hmm. So there, there are some good things, but I also think with, with a lot of these guys is they, they can point the finger at a disconnect in someone else's preaching, but not see it in their own, which, Hey, I probably do the exact same thing, but I think that there are times when it's not maybe like I've got my, my notes from reading it. So let's get, look at a definition here. Summing up this section this is on page 10. We can define preaching Christ, and that's what he's, his whole book is about, preaching Christ. Preaching Christ as preaching sermons which authentically integrate the message of the text with the climax of God's revelation in the person, work, and or teaching of Jesus Christ as revealed in the New Testament. And on a general level, I have no problem with that. However, to always integrate Christ into every text of the Old Testament is not correct. And if you say, I have to do that which I think he's going to make a real strong push, then I would disagree. Yeah, he kind of, I thought, I thought he dialed that back at some other point, uh, some other parts. So he like critiques some other guy's sermon, like you just said, it's easy to critique others. Um, and uh, this uh, other author had this sermon from Genesis 32, when Jacob wrestled with the angel. Okay, so Jacob struggled, Jacob was changed, and Jacob was blessed. Those are the three points from an exegetical outline. And then the, the preacher uh, made the title, had the title of the sermon, When God Confronts Us. Just like God confronted Jacob, God confronted us. So when God confronts us, it sometimes causes struggle, like Jacob struggling with God. God's confrontation calls us to change, just like Jacob was changed. And then number three, we receive God's blessing when he confronts us. Okay, so that's what this preacher did with this uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel text. And then within his comment, comments on that sermon, he says there's three, he hits on three points. I really liked this. The first is this generalizing thing. The, author, the preacher has taken this specific historical situation of Jacob struggling with God and then generalized it and universalized it and said, you know, your struggle with God. Is that what the text is really communicating in Genesis 32? This generalization and this... No. Uh, no, it's not what no, the text is communicating not. at all. So he's not preaching the text. And then uh, the second point, God's confrontation calls us to change. Um, this is the spiritualizing, okay? Just like Jacob was changed, now God is calling on you to change, uh, the point is just, I mean, how was Jacob changed? God changed his name. <laughs> and he broke his hip. Yeah, and broke his hip. Okay, so yeah, he was changed, all right. So now, <laughs> you know, well, you're struggling with God. Guess what? You Didn't need to change, too. did we talk about brokenness in the last podcast? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so he's spiritualized the second point in this attempt to preach this Old Testament I text. Broken oh, my word. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm off the rails here. <laughs> and then the third point, we receive God's blessing when he confronts us. And oh, what was this one? He had, oh, this is like the redemptive historical literary context. 
forced interpretation. Oh, I don't remember. But anyway, it's still not it's still not what the text is actually communicating. Amen. That's not the point of the passage. No. So um, preaching the Old Testament, especially narrative texts, can be pretty challenging. I would strongly encourage you to take Hebrew and Hebrew exegesis one, where we work through this specifically. But there's my books in business, uh, Gradanus. I'll see what I think about it as I read through it. And um, fun times. Did you have someone else? I don't know, like page 100 or something like that. I haven't gotten to chapter 5. I was trying to read through chapter 5 because that's where he gets into his actual method Yeah, a so little bit, and I didn't get there What yet. I think is really good about Gradanus is chapters 3 and 4, which is the historical walkthrough of hermeneutical and homiletical approaches of all these other guys. So he talks about right. uh, patristic fathers... Mm-hmm. Patristic Fathers. It's kind Luther, of like a Calvin. double down on a term. Uh-huh. But yeah, Luther, Calvin, Spurgeon, like he gets into a lot of those guys and kind of, if I could summarize it, I would just say allegorical interpretation is bad. <laughs> like, and I think he hits that really hard and, uh, and he gets into, I, I, so I think there's a lot of agreement here. We're not disagreeing with it, but here's, here's another quote that I've got. This is on page 62. The point for contemporary preachers is this, colon, if the Old Testament indeed witnesses to Christ, then we are faithful preachers only when we do justice to this dimension in our interpretation and preaching of the Old Testament. So if the Old Testament, that's a big term, testifies to Christ, I'm only faithful if I have a Christ dimension in my sermon. And I'd be like, Song of Songs. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, I always go to the song. I mean, Done. Spurgeon allegorized it. They've all allegorized it. So what's really interesting is Gradanus also has, he's, I don't know if he's doing a series or if he's just doing like mm-hmm. particular books, but this is like his general overview, preaching Christ in the Old Testament. He has a series where he's like preaching Christ in Leviticus, preaching Christ in, and I bought this, I have it in my car right now. Ecclesiastes. Yeah. So I'm really interested what huh. he does with Ecclesiastes. Well, the one shepherd at the end. Probably. That's the big thing in Ecclesiastes. Well, but in Ecclesiastes, make... so I've tried to apply it, and even for a New Testament church, well, what is what is like contentment? Okay, it's a big yeah. message of, well, you know, content with what God's given you. All right. And so I've often kind of spoken this phrase, well, how do you really enjoy life? Well, you need to have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. That's like a phrase that I'll use frequently as I'm preaching through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you really want to enjoy life, you need to have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. And what am I doing there? Is that legitimate? The gospel. It's the gospel. Exactly. But, I mean, I'm bringing Jesus specifically into it. And I think, I think you're okay to do that because the author of Ecclesiastes makes an exhortation to fear God, which would be a very similar Old Testament say, way mm. of saying you need to believe in Jehovah. So and is that so, a Christological interpretation of Ecclesiastes? No, you didn't say it meant that, It's a though. Christological you're application. A, you're right. You're, yeah, you didn't say the text means this is like you need to uh, have a relationship with the Father through his Son. The, you didn't say key. that's the meaning of the text. You explain the meaning, and then you how do you accomplish that meaning? And well, you're bringing in the, the New, New Testament, Testament theology. It's in. through Jesus Christ. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would say, and that's con- that's not interpreting it that way. Because I think what there's what was the other book? There was another book about all the same stuff that would say like you like you literally can't understand. It was it was beginning at Moses. You you cannot understand the Old Testament without an understanding of the New Testament. And I would say, big wrong. 
big, big, big wrong. And if you're going to take what the New Testament says and reinterpret the Old Testament, you're going way farther than you should. But if you're going to use redemptive history to apply the truth of the Old Testament Mm -hmm. to me today, I don't think there's any problem with that. Yeah. That's just principalizing bridge. That's the basic hermeneutic idea of that's the author intent. Like that is okay. But yeah, making it all about hermeneutically spiraling out of control in control, spiraling into no. Anyone? Anyone? I'm good. Hermeneutical spiral. It's the name of a book. As it's good. As I've got, no, I'm, I'm two points. I'll give you two points. <sighs> Thank you. Okay. I, I have a book. I have a book. This is the everlasting man by GK Chesterton. And, uh, Chesterton is a Christian, not maybe in a pure evangelical sense, but he's a Christian worldview that we should trust. And what he's talking about in The Everlasting Man, he's talking about man. It's a history of humans, of what man is. It's broken into two sections. There's the, what is man? I should just probably read what it actually says. On the creature called man is part one. And then part two is on the man called Christ. So he's going to talk about Jesus as the everlasting man, essentially. And what what I found really interesting in this first half is talking about kind of like how are humans progressing from the dawn, quote, dawn of civilization. And one of the biggest problems that historians make is that they assume there was a time when man was not civilized. And he actually like rips that to shreds. It's like, He's like, you start with history of humans with prehistoric humans and like, think about how that's an oxymoron. Our first history of man is prehistory man. And, and Chesterton is very pithy and he's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's, that's Charlie's translation of Chesterton. A little bit less pithy. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a Bill Cosby. Like that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So uh, but then he gets into, and, and the reason why I'm reading through this is later this fall or next spring, there will be some episodes about uh, C.S. Lewis submitted this list to a magazine of his top 10 most influential books. And I think it's personally influential, not overall. And so this is actually number two on Lewis's list, which is pretty impressive. And uh, he actually didn't put any, there's only one other inkling he mentioned on that list, which is Charles Williams. And it's pretty low. I think it's like seven or eight, but Tolkien didn't make it. Barfield didn't make it. It's like a lot of his buddies. He was like, nope, don't care about you guys. Um, but so, so if I ever make a list, like, sorry, you guys probably aren't going to care. Anyway, <clears throat> okay, like anyone ever is ever going to care about the top 10 books I care about. But so he gets in here, he's, he talks about man from the dawn of civilization has always been very human, distinct from animal. And that includes government, that includes religion, that includes art. And then he kind of goes down this religious road and he talks about the God, capital G, the gods, like the pantheon, like the Greek mythological, like ideas, like all the myth. And he talks about the demons and then he talks about the philosophers. And it's like four different veins of religion and history. And what I found really interesting, which I actually think why Lewis maybe really liked this, is he talks about uh, the merging of the imagination and the reason, which there's a poem called, I think it's called Reason, uh, by C.S. Lewis, where he talks about this. Like in him, the struggle between 
like something being rational and empirically provable versus what he feels to be true through his imagination. And that's Lewis's whole dilemma is he loves fantasy, but he knows it's not actually real. And so Chesterton actually interacts with that as he talks about mythology and it's really interesting. So just, I'm going to read some here. Uh, He says, the substance of all such paganism may be summarized thus. It is an attempt to reach the divine reality through the imagination alone. In its own field, reason does not restrain it at all. It is, a, it is vital to view of, of all history that reason is something separate from religion, even in the most rational of these civilizations. It is only as an afterthought when such cults are decadent or on the defensive that a few Neoplatonists or a few Brahmins are found trying to rationalize them, and even then only by trying to allegorize them. But in reality, the rivers of mythology and philosophy run parallel and do not mingle until they meet in the sea of Christendom. And I think, I think that right there describes Lewis's transformation to Christianity from Christianity to atheism and back to Christianity. I think that describes his walk really well. It's like what led him away was he tried to rationalize everything And there is a part of him, his imagination, this other river that is completely separate from reason. Like you really want these things to be true. And then where do those two rivers, it it doesn't actually make sense for things to be parallel and then meet. But two parallel rivers actually do meet as they both pour into a sea together. And that sea is Christ. And that would be, I think, exactly how Lewis would describe his own faith which is probably why he put this book so high on that list. There's actually some other things here. I don't have time to talk about them, but I think there's a heavy influence in this book that you would see depicted in the last battle of the Narnia series um, where he actually, yeah, really quickly, he makes comment about how all these pagan gods, they merged the the pagan gods together, but there was never a religion that was like, what about the Jehovah Baal God? You know, like they never tried to match a God to Jehovah, like to muddle him down. And then what do you have in the last battle? You have this pagan God Tash and at the end, there's this monkey and this donkey trying to, and all these other foreigners trying to get you to think that Tash and Aslan are one God together. Mm. And he, I think he got that from Chesterton. Oh, He's trying to depict it imaginatively. Huh. That's fascinating. But anyway, so yeah, I, it's a great book. It's really good. Um, there's a lot in there that you're probably just going to be like, mm, don't need that. But there's, there's some really good moments. Uh, I recommend just for the pace of it, uh, an audiobook, which if you have Audible, if you have an Amazon Prime, you can get Everlasting Man for free in Audible. And uh, I listen to it at two times speed, and I, I listen and read at the same time. And it just it keeps you moving yep. through some of the slower parts. Uh, but there's a lot of good things there. So I'd, get, I'd give it like a six. I really like doing the reading and listening at the same time. I find it engages both like two of the senses, and it... It does something to help. I mean, it is. It is. It does feel when you first try it a little rushed and a little bit like mentally exhausting. But once you get used to it, that it's actually a really good. I like that. Sometimes I won't do it with double speed. But sometimes I'll have like the Bible play and I'll read it, and I find that also helps me to focus too. Well, today for our devotional, I want to do. I want to talk about the Great Commission, and I want to ponder an aspect of it, and then. Uh, just think of, kind of have a discussion about it. So I'm going to read the Great Commission. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So I think as New Testament Christians, I'm not sure... There's, there are probably Christians out there who don't think they need to be sharing the gospel, but I think most of us probably are are aware of that. In fact, we're probably a, a bit ashamed of how little we do. It, some of us are better than others. You know, sometimes we have seasons of life where we have more opportunities. But I know there are times in my life where I've thought, man, I really, I really have not had the opportunity to share the gospel. I need to start praying for an opportunity. And so sometimes, uh, in like the weird part of my mind where I like imagine without thinking much about it, what that's going to look like. You know, I think of myself sitting at a coffee shop or something and I got my Bible out and I'm just like waiting and someone walks by and says, Hey, what's that book? And it's like, boom, share the gospel, you know, or like, uh, you're, you know, you're just going about your business and then up comes someone who wants to know about the gospel and you kind of pray for those opportunities. And then it's like, they don't always come. So we've had, we had a sermon, uh, this last spring on the great commission, and we had one a year ago last spring, and both were really memorable. And so as I was pondering this the other day, there's, um, it's, it occurred to me that the first thing it says is that you need to go. And, and so I think the point is that we have to go to the unbeliever. And, you know, that is one of those things that you kind of might forget or not focus on as much. And so my thought today is I just want to ask a question, like, what's it look like to go in relation to the Great Commission? Because sometimes I think, and I think rightly so, there's a couple of, maybe I would say, spheres in which you might think through that idea of going. And so I'll open this up to be discussed in just a moment. But I would say that there's probably like... um, you go in like a physical sense, I think. Yeah. So you're going to go from where you are physically to where unbelievers are physically, and you're going to tell them the good news. So when I think of that, like some of the things I think about are typical door-to-door evangelism. So in high school, we would like go knocking on doors and do this. It was kind of a sneaky survey where like you try to ask someone questions about religion, but it you're just wanting to share the gospel. And it probably came off either... <laughs> weird or at times just weirdly deceptive because you're trying to, but you're trying to share the gospel. So you go out and door to door. Okay. All right. What are some other ways that people go? I think of like when the Olympics showed up in like, you know, somewhere in the U S and like you send mission trips out there and you're going to share the gospel with the world. Or if there's like a big event and you're going to go like evangelize where this group of people is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You're going. Um, I think of like the the old school, this is like a kind of a reverse go. The old school revival preachers were like, you get this guy in a stadium and he's going to preach and you call these people here to come hear him. You're kind of like getting them to go to you by going to them through the airwaves and telling them, hey, come here. Um, I know this guy who eats at the same Casey's every day. He goes and gets a donut and sits there purposely because he's trying to go and get to know these people. I actually really like that one. All right. So here's a question, though. If you've ever heard someone say, yeah, I was doing this thing and I had the opportunity to share the gospel, both of you, I'll ask you both, like, what's an occasion or an activity or an event that you've heard of people having the opportunity to share the gospel before? Can you think of any off the top of your head? Not that I've listed something else. Uh, Working on my house. Oh, you're working on your house. Uh, Neighbor comes over or something? Neighbor comes over. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean... I've heard a lot of opportunities. I just at like sporting events. Okay. Like, you know, 
so-and-so is going to watch this football game on Friday night and they're sitting next to someone or, I mean, I've even heard crazier stories than that. Like someone went to like a college sporting event and there's someone sitting next to them and then it's just like God yeah. opens doors, yep. you know? And, yeah. Um, yeah. What about like uh trap? Oh, go, go ahead. So, um, I had to go buy a van. Oh yeah. Blah. You loved it. It was your favorite experience, right? I hated it. Go back like five episodes and you can hear all about that. Oh, man. <laughs> he was salty folks, but it's a lot of time. It really yeah. is. And a door opened there. Yeah. Praise in the, Lord the process. So I'm not sure how that's all going to pan out, but okay. we'd be faithful to the message Amen. and we'll see what happens. So have you ever heard this story of, I was, I was going, I was like flying across the country and the person sat down next to me. We had like a two hour talk about the Bible. Have you ever heard someone give a testimony like that? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And does that seem like a common testimony you've heard before? Uh, yes. Like I think I was thinking about this, like how many times you heard someone said, I'm going on a plane, like I'm going on a flight. I've even heard preachers say like, sometimes I just want to sit there and read and I don't want to share the gospel. And you can't, it's like the person's right there. You have two hours and you end up talking and it, it dawned on me. I think the reason you have more opportunities in a situation like the flight on a long thing is you've literally gone and you're sitting right next to them for a long period of time. Charlie, the football game, it's the same thing. You're right there. So I think like part of this that Christ wants us to do is to physically go and be physically near people. So, for me, I was thinking back, man, have I had a lot of opportunity to share the gospel? And if I haven't, I'm looking at my life and when am I even around unbelievers? Like, I think that's maybe something for us to think about. Um, the second thought is, I think you could maybe take go in like, uh, I don't know if it's, it's kind of the same way, but there's a, a slight tweak to it. So I knew a guy who, he's a pastor and he doesn't have a lot of interaction in the community. And so he decided to become a volunteer firefighter in the community. I actually know two of these guys now that I'm thinking about it. And the sole purpose of becoming a firefighter was just so he could get to know people in the community. And so there you're going, you're going like physically, yes, but you're sort of going in like a metaphorical sense where you're both going to do the same thing together. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I guess what occurred to me is, is, is I think about the Great Commission, I think that you're, you need to make disciples and there's other parts of this. There's the going, the teaching, the baptizing. But for me, I think for a while, I sort of gloss over the go part. And so I just thought I'd open it up for a discussion like, what are ways that you think that might be significant? Or are there ways where you've noticed, hey, I had the opportunity and you should think back, oh yeah, it's because I was going or I was like trying to find people to talk to. Give me your thoughts. Like there's like an active versus a passive thought. I think that's my idea. So actually I go back to the airport thing. Sure. One of the coolest opportunities I ever had. You ever want a reason to mem to memorize, to learn Hebrew? I was reading Hebrew on my phone and I had someone sitting next to me. It was a young gal and we're in the far back of the plane. So this is like nobody wants to be there, right? Like, mm -hmm. yep. Even when you get to the airport, you're not getting out of there for like 45 minutes. <laughs> and... I get in the far back and it's a, it's a, a wife. Her husband is across the aisle with their like one year old son. And she keeps like looking over and I'm like, Oh great. This is going to be like some liberal chick who like, what are you reading? You know? And she looked at me and she said, are you reading Hebrew? I'm like, yeah. Whoa. And she's an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. No and, way. Well, she, she grew up in Judaism, but then, 
is not, you know, not there currently, but Jewish roots. And so I'm like, yes, I am reading, I am reading Hebrew. And she's like, what are you reading? I can't remember what I was reading. I wish I could, but I, and, and she's like, well, what, like, what's that about? You know, like ask, like, it's like Ethiopian eunuch. Like, what does that mean? And I'm like, well, here's the context of it. And here's the point that the text is driving to. But it's just, it was so cool because I'm, and I, I was probably flying somewhere or traveling somewhere to speak at a Bible camp and I'm just studying my notes, like studying the text. And here's literally a Jewish person's like, that's my language. Wow. It was really cool. That's really cool. Um, But kind of just the, the idea of going, uh, I think you, you already said it. You just have to be around people. Yeah. And I yep. think you have to be around people, not with the goal of them getting saved. Cause that's not the goal. If you're as a, as a believer walking with the Lord and your primary goal is to reveal the glory of God, you're going to care about sanctification. And if you do that in a community where people see you being sanctified, they truly do see Christ and over time, they're drawn to you. And this happened in Williamsburg. If you don't know why we reference Williamsburg, that's I pastored in a town, Williamsburg, about an hour and a half away. And there were silly things that I did in Williamsburg. Like, I know nothing about soccer, but I coached because I was, I was like a warm body. coerced into doing this. <laughs> and yeah, a warm body. Like, it's like second and third graders. I know nothing about soccer. And it's like, and I'm like, you know what kids, you're going to have fun. And, <laughs> and here's the single guy in his twenties and all these unbelieving moms, at least, you know, as much as it's up to me to know, um, they just, you know, here's the single guy and like, they just love that someone cared about their kids. And they like, I still have relationships four or five years after the fact with some of these families and God's still working. Uh, and you know, I, we haven't seen the end of the story and we won't, but it's just being a, in a situation, soccer coaching and you know, God's working in my life. I'm around people and they see something different about you. And that's contagious. Like they, you know, they can see Jesus and they want that. Not, not all of them want that. Um, some of them heavily reject it, but I think there is something to just being a normal guy or girl who cares about being changed into the image of Christ and you're just around people and that can be around unbelievers. And then your sanctification is helping people see the gospel and you, that, that same thing happens when you're around believers too. And that's why we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves because my walk in sanctification actually encourages others, others to be sanctified too. But yeah, so I, I really think that's just, you have, just be a part of a community and be friendly, not with the goal, like we need five people to get saved, but I just, I'm going to live my life out around people and, and there will be opportunities. Like you can't avoid it because people will, people will wonder why you are the way that you are if you're really a Christian. Are we just done with that? Well, I think I, I got like maybe <laughs> two more things. Sorry, Tim gave us a thumbs up and I didn't know how to interpret that. I, I liked it, but you have some more things. Go. No, I, uh, so I was, I was thinking I had an opportunity on a plane to talk about the gospel because I was going down to a theological school. And so I was talking to this guy who was from, uh, he's teaching in Florida he's from Japan and we had this long worldview conversation. It was fascinating. 
I never would have had that if I didn't get in a seat right next to the guy and then be friendly and kind. And so it just dawned on me that there's times where I don't have opportunity to share the gospel. And I think to myself, it's because I don't see any unbelievers or whatever. Um, but I, I bear the responsibility of going to be near them. I think that's the key thing here. So like, what did you do in the soccer group? You went to be near them. Uh, I need to go be near them. And what did, so like last year, like I'm trying to get to know my neighbors and then the <clears throat> beginning part of the COVID pandemic before we really knew what we were working with here happens and guess what everybody's not doing. Like no one's going out of their house and just getting back around people again, you know, later on that summer, it was just, you could tell there was a big difference. And so I think sometimes it's not that we don't want to share the gospel, but we're not paying attention to how can we put ourselves in the lives and the paths of people who don't know God. And I think that sometimes is a key thing that for me, I miss, like I need to go so like getting out and talking to my neighbors, getting out and going here, I think being involved in some sort of a hobby group is not a bad thing at all. It's a really good idea. Um, that also takes time to go. And so if your whole life is so busy, you can't make the time to go. Uh, that, that might be something else to think about. So I just thought it might be think profitable to think through all the aspects of going. And so you got one more thing you want to say. But as a listener, I would encourage us all to like take some time this week to think of, what are ways I can either add more time to my opportunities to go or maybe get make the going of my life closer to some unbelievers? Yeah, I thought that popped into my head too. It's like in our church programming, so much of our evangelism is how do we get unbelievers to come to us? And that's backwards. That's them. Sorry, I mm -hmm. didn't mean to cut you off. I'm just Well, no, that's, that's exactly up. my thought is that, you know, go make disciples by getting them to come to you and then you baptize and you teach them. Like, it doesn't say that. No, it's not in my translation here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, I mean, but th th you got to be balanced. There is a sense in which you do want people to come to your church. And if they're not, and there's reasons why, it could be a problem. Hopefully, it's because you are genuine and worship and they don't want to be around Jesus. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and if they're That'd unbelievers the and they're yep. opposed, like, that's... We shouldn't be surprised by it's that. It's because you're rude and unfriendly. That's a different story. <laughs> my dad my dad used to get so upset that unbelievers wouldn't come to church. He'd invite them to church and they wouldn't come. I'm like, Dad, that's exactly what you should expect. Yeah. Like, the majority of people aren't going to come to church when you invite them. Like, you realize that, right? And he's like, God, but I want them to. <laughs> anyway, closing thoughts? Sounds good. No closing thoughts. Well, I would just say... Closing songs? No, we're not going to sing a song. Okay. I, I would just say this. I, th I think sometimes we get ashamed that we don't share the gospel and we think, man, I need to know like what to do or whatever. Or like you'll get a preacher come and they're like getting in your face about it. And I would say that probably for me here, I'm encouraged because I need to be a disciple. Like I need to follow Jesus. And then in my following of Jesus, this is what you were just saying, Charlie, I need to go and be around unbelievers. And if I do that, you're right. The glory will be seen. I'll have opportunity. Then it's boldness. I got to be bold and I got to take an opportunity. So just think about the going. I, that's my, my encouragement. It's summer. You're doing vacations. Everyone's traveling. Think about our opportunities as you go. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email 
thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.